What you said about Delgado, I thought was uh, great. It leads to uh, a paragraph that I really loved in your in your essay because uh, you talk about the Red Book, which you mentioned before, called Critical Race Theory: The Key Writings That Formed the Movement in 1995. And in your article, you describe how that was split between realist and idealist CRT scholarship, but at least the CRT's realist roots were firmly um, acknowledged. But by 2003, you have books like um, Crossroads, Directions, and a New Critical Race Theory. And I thought that's very interesting. They said a new critical race theory. And that was published in 2003, eight years after the 1995 book. And in that one, um, the the realist, I, the realist school was completely excised from the CRT movement. There was no essays by Derek Bell in it. There was nothing by Delgado. Uh, Derek Bell, they did an afterword that was um, by Derek Bell, but it was a it was a very soft afterword. It wasn't one of his more um, you know realist realist writers. He just kind of put it in there, I guess, just to have somebody. And you see, and you wrote that Delgado criticized the books, arguing, "quote Ideas, words, categories, and symbols had replaced nationalism, interests, convergence, history, and similar tools that had served as critical race theory." stock in trade until then. That was his criticism of that 2003 book. And then and then you add, uh, these are your words, instead, collection features jargon-heavy essays by academics writing about their tenure struggles and white authors apologetically joining um, the conversation. And I thought that was so interesting because what you described there is basically what the writing still is today. So it seems like this 2003 book kind of set the template for what we have now, like um, Black people are, who are experts arguing about their kind of personal career struggles and then uh, white people apologetically I love that term apologetically joining the conversation and we see it outside of CRT too in a lot of things like so many things start out one way as a criticism of you know structures and then end up uh, being about black bourgeoisie career struggles and white apologies like we have the Ferguson and and uh, Trayvon um, uprisings and resistance and it ends with Oscar so white uh, people point to that as like the, the winning of the struggle it's like wait a minute how do we start with um, structures that, that uh, protect and incentivize extrajudicial um, assassinations of black people by uh, the police to uh, rich black people winning more Oscars you know uh, and people sincerely told me that that was uh, a win of Black Lives Matter like on the internet when people would argue with me about Black Lives Matter and I'd say what tangible things have they done and they're like well, look at Oscar so white I'm like are you seriously saying that is the solution like black people's uh rich black people's uh career advancement is the solution to this question you know and um when the george floyd thing happened after it's all done we got a bunch of um movies and shows with like more diverse casts and we have like a line on every streaming service a row dedicated to like uh black movies and tv shows you, you go to like netflix or amazon prime or whatever there's not like a row you know dedicated to um black movies that that pretty much was was the big was the big win that was um some representation so yeah I, I thought that was a that was a great that was a great um great paragraph and i just wanted to say that before we move on to the kimberly the kimberly crenshaw um part and hmm? I, I was just gonna say this is actually a, a long long history um in academia so uh some listeners might be familiar with cultural studies and specifically Stuart hall um, as one of the major figures of that intellectual tradition and in in one of his essays i believe it's from 1994 though um I don't have the title with me here. Um, he is discussing how sort of during the Reagan era, um, racial violence and economic disparities and stuff were exacerbated. 
And so he's writing in the early to mid nineties and he's saying, look, incarceration is going up. Education levels are going down. Um, the, the access to, to jobs and housing has gotten somewhat worse for black people in the United States. But we do see an increase of positive representations of black individuals and families on TV and in movies. And that accounts for something. And like, I was assigned this text in class in grad school. And when I went to class, the, the other students and the and the instructor, the professor, they were like, yeah, he's absolutely right that there has been some progress, but we just need to. And I was like, don't you see that like the positive symbols, the positive representations of black people on TV and in movies exist to obfuscate, to hide the worsening material conditions? Oh, wait. So I wasn't following. You're saying that, uh, are you saying Stuart Hall was positing it as, as, uh, a good thing? Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's what it went over my head. That's that's amazing. Yeah, that, that totally still happens today. That's amazing. Yeah. And so Stuart Hall, right? And I I, I, I never forgot this. It was like, it, I just remember reading this in that class and going, like, how could he say that? Like, I'm a know-nothing graduate student. Here he is, one of the dominant intellectual figures in one of the most influential in, uh, intellectual um, schools of thought in the 20th century and he's fallen for this i said this is sad because i was like yeah if you show positive imagery of black families in movies and tvs um and then of course this is going to be alongside the things and he doesn't never mention things like cops you know where you actually do or um uh, america's most wanted or all these like you know uh fetishizing law enforcement crime shows that show you know um that show uh black and other non-white people and and you know and as as uh t thomas fortune might call it poor white trash all on there you know those images are juxtaposed and it's like, ah, yeah, well, the good guys in blue are out there getting, you know, taking care of the criminals and all the, all the respectable middle-class black families are, are doing, are doing all right. And so everything is okay with the world, but like that all is there to, to um, confuse people about the actual material reality of what's going on. The emergence of conscious uh, hip hop in the late 80s in terms of like, you know, either NWA from the West Coast, Public Enemy from the East Coast, it's all of a sudden controversial. And now we've got to censor it. And it's like, but they're trying to actually communicate what's going on in the streets, what you're not getting uh, from the media, what's actually being hidden in the mass media. And so, yeah. And so, and I think we do the same thing today. And this is why I always ask the question. We need to be able to account for the fact that we have a black president, Barack Obama, and at the same time, Eric Garner's getting choked out in the streets of New York. At the same time, we have more black people in prison now than we had in slavery uh, 170 years ago. So, like, how can that be explained? And when I pose this question to liberals of any race, they they always are kind of confused. Conservatives have a very good answer to this, right? Liberals are usually like, well, we've made a lot of progress, but we still have a long way to go. Conservatives are like, well, it's all based on individuals. And so if he didn't want to get choked out, he should have complied and, and all you know, sorts of things like this. But I think it's a very interesting question. If you can ask people that, how do you have these two uh, contradictory trends going on at the exact same time? What can account for this? The conservative answer is individual blame. The liberal answer is there's been some progress, but we've got a ways to go. But I think there's even more interesting things that can be uh taken away from just a very simple juxtaposition like that 
you know, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, what you're talking about made me think about this thing that happened. I thought it was pretty funny. It's a perfect example. Uh, at the peak of the George uh, Floyd uprisings in uh, June 2020, uh, this happened. And a lot of um, Black people in that liberal idealist school of CRT were praising this and tweeting about it from their Twitter accounts as like a great speech and a great moment, right? And and it was this. And I'm reading from an IndieWire article, right? Michael B. Jordan urges studios to commit to Black hiring. Quote, let us bring our darkness into the to the light. Jordan spoke on Saturday in Los Angeles during a peaceful George Floyd protest organized by Hollywood agencies. <laughs> and it goes, this past weekend, Los Angeles has seen protests over the death of George Floyd, as well as those calling for police reform and racial justice continued through the city. Joining participants in these protests in Century City was actor Michael B. Jordan. During a rousing speech, Jordan called upon Hollywood studios to rethink their hiring practices and welcome more Black artists and players into the fold, citing recent strides in gender parity as a model for what could be achieved uh, in Hollywood. The star of Black Panther and Creed appeared at the protest organized by the big four agencies, ICM Partners, CAA, his creative artist agency, UTA, and WME, it's William Morris, standing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. So in the film Fruitvale Station, Jordan played Oscar Grant, a man killed by police in Oakland, California on New Year's Day, 2009. And what's crazy is that the first paragraph without any hint of irony says, yeah, at a protest calling for police reform and racial justice, um, Michael Jordan came out to ask for agencies to hire more Black actors at a protest organized by agencies and it's like how can that sentence exist that paragraph exists and no one see and it reminds me of what you just described with the Stuart Hall article about how how can people just read this and not see like it's right there in the text the irony jumping out at you in, in the face and there's only like two more paragraphs so it's going to read them real quick it goes um, I use my this is from his speech I use my power to demand diversity and Derek Bell would say like you know he doesn't have real power same way he said he doesn't have real influence himself Derek Bell he's a symbol he goes I use my power to demand diversity but it's time to studios, the agencies, all these buildings that we're standing in front of. I wish they would do the same, Jordan said. You committed to a 50-50 gender parity in 2020. Where is the challenge to commit to Black hiring? Black content led by Black executives, Black consultants. Are you policing? I thought this was very cynical to use the word policing at a George mm -hmm. uh, Floyd uh, protest to, to liken uh, your career struggles to what George Floyd went through. Are you policing our storytelling as well? That was a disgusting line. Let us bring our darkness uh, to the light. And Jordan called upon the agencies themselves to support black culture. The sneakers, the sports, the comedic culture that you guys love so much, we've dealt with discrimination at, at every turn. Can you help fund black brands? A great agent doesn't have to be a great agent, could advocate for relationships with organizers. So he's asking uh, um, entertainment agents to reach out to organizers and help organizers, um, you know, get more branding deals. Uh, at a Black Lives Matter protest for uh, George Floyd. And and I mean, this did happen. Like Patrice Cullors got an overall deal with um, Warner Media to produce to uh, produce stuff. But I just found it so um, amazing that right in real time. And I think it's a perfect example of the whole racial interest thing because who's organizing this protest that's calling them out? It's the four big agencies themselves. The four of them organized a Black Lives Matter protest uh, dedicated to calling themselves out. So that, that alone shows that there's no real divergence from their interest happening in, in this thing because they're probably happier with that than with a real overthrowing of um, white supremacy and racial capitalism. That's big. That's a bigger threat to their existence in this dog and pony. Show. Yeah, I mean, uh, I hadn't heard of, of that before, but um, yeah, that's very interesting. And I think, you know, Bell would say, yeah, sure, like ask for something like that or, or even demand protest, you know, for something like that. The real test is, 
Does it make a material difference in the lives of everyday Black people in the United States? And if the answer is no, then yeah, it was just a symbol. It was just, you know, something to uh, uh, pacify the protests. It, you not, know? It, it not only doesn't make a material difference, it's the active hijacking of a, a protest asking for material things uh, and subverting it to something that doesn't make a mater material difference. It's like actively um, undermining the, the, the demand for material um, interest, which is, I think why it's part of the racial uh convergence right? uh yes yes i see what you mean there yeah uh yeah on, on that on that interpretation i think you're i think you're spot on to segue from the career interest thing to uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, I think there's a lot of overlap. Uh, one, one thing interesting with the career interest thing, um, I recently read for the first time Audre Lorde's uh, The Master's Tools, and that's just that's a that's a quote I had heard a lot in uh, you know the discourse. You know, The Master's Tools cannot dismantle the Master's House, and but I never actually read the article until like a couple of months ago. But I feel like to give an example, of what you said about uh, critical race theory becoming just anything. Thing that um, talks about race. Uh, we have things now where people who never even describe themselves as liberal CRT, because Lord, as far as I can tell, never called herself critical race theory or anything. But I feel like you're more likely to hear um, modern proponents of Kimberly Crenshaw, or Kimberly Crenshaw herself, cite Audre Lord, you know, in the CRT debate than to ever cite um, Derek Bell. Like I, I, I hear her brought up so often or cited or quoted so often in these liberal CRT books that I thought she actually was considered liberal CRT uh, and you know she didn't consider herself that of any type but that paper was fascinating about it was when I finally did read it it was about um her complaining about her place on the conference and how she was treated at some um academic conference and it was just a total um job complaint or, or career complaint about um white feminists not helping her career career enough and I was just kind of shocked that that was the context of the quote that she used this kind of lofty um deep quote to just maneuver for such a not just generally bourgeois but very specific to herself uh, career complaint and I feel like a lot of that ties into um, Kimberly Crenshaw's career as well I feel like there's a lot of that strain happening in in, in her career where there's a type of self-interest in it that I think is not very prominent in Derek Bell's work who you know as we described actually often did things against his self-interest in, in, in protest and I think you know the best way to kind of get to what I mean by that is to start at the beginning of her of her career and this is part three of your three-part series um and it says the theory of intersectionality emerges out of racist colonialist, colonialist ideology, not radical politics. That's the title of uh part three of Rethinking the CRT Debate by yourself, Patrick D. Anderson. And I'll let you start with the description of this this piece, because there, there's a lot. I mean, that's a pretty bold uh, title, but I think you do a good job of back, of backing up that claim made in the title. Uh, yeah, so for um, so for this essay, uh, the original title was actually probably a lot more inflammatory than uh, what the Black Agenda Report editors ended up uh, giving it. And I would actually thank them for reining it in a little bit, because even though the piece is, you know, published in a popular press outlet rather than an academic journal um and therefore you do have some license to be polemical um and and i do like to use that license when i can um also you want to be polemical i think in a way where you get people's attention but bring them in 
rather than drive them away. And so I thought um, the title they ended up giving it uh, worked very well. And the reason that I wanted to have this be one of the essays for the three-part uh, series is that in one of the essays, I thought I need to explain what Derek Bell's views are and explain why he needs to be part of this CRT conversation if it's going to be meaningful. With the second essay, I wanted to distinguish the realist and idealist camps within CRT so that readers could appreciate that there are serious methodological disagreements that even though all of these things are called critical race theory, they agree on almost nothing, right? And I know that there are some attempts to say, well, despite all the diversity of thought within critical race theory, here's the main things that everyone kind of agrees on. But I think that that's the wrong way to do it because they have fundamentally different starting points. So I thought that's why that's important for part two. For part three, I wanted to talk about intersectionality for two reasons. One, because Crenshaw, I had seen her be featured as sort of the most prominent uh, advocate, spokesperson, uh, participant of the critical race theory tradition in many media outlets. And, you know, I'm not here to say that she doesn't deserve to be out there talking about it because she is a formative member of... Uh, a principal uh, figure of the intellectual tradition. So, of course, she should. But I think it also should be remembered that she represents a very specific approach to CRT and that she doesn't represent the entire tradition in and of herself or of her approach. Um, and so uh, that was one reason. The other reason I wanted to talk about intersectionality is partly because of uh, my training and my own research in the field of black male studies and the kind of emerging critiques of intersectionality that are coming from that tradition. Not to say that uh, that's the only place that critiques of intersectionality come from. It's just to say that that's the main way that I've been trained in and pursued my academic research um, as a scholar. And so that's kind of how this particular essay came about. And what I think is really important about it is that most of the time today, the word intersectionality is used by people not as an analytical term, not as a name for a very specific methodology, but as a slogan or as an indicator or a symbol of a political or moral orientation. And um, to me, I would much rather talk about the methodology, but because the term intersectionality, especially for liberals of of many races in the American academy, um, I'm talking white liberals, um, you know, and, and non-white liberals of various kinds uh, uh, from various communities. Um, a lot of people put so much, uh, they have so much stake in the term intersectionality that to even question it is just like for the American patriot to say that the word American, uh, you know, to use it in some kind of derogatory way, it's been lifted up as, as kind of iconic in this in the sense of, of um, if you say you're doing something intersectional, you're doing something good, regardless of what it is you're actually doing. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, it, it's, become, it's become its own evident um, good thing, like you know, yes. the, the starting premise is that is that is good. And I also noticed that it's also kind of just become a term for diversity. Like basically, you're being intersectional if you're just talking about different groups of people. Which, if that's the case, then intersectionality is nothing new. There's always been a word for that already, like like that diversity. They've kind of made it mean um, nothing in order to make it able to mean everything. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and I think one of the things that you see in the history of intersection, or I, what I would say is, I find most people who use the term intersectionality today haven't actually read the historical development of the scholarship on this topic or this approach. So um, they don't know, for example, that you know Peter Kwan's essays from the late '90s uh, about the co-synthesis of categories um, was a serious critique of intersectionality that was then just folded into intersectionality. And then of many people who say, well, I do intersectionality, they're actually doing co-synthesis. And Peter Kwan's entire method just got taken up by intersectionality itself and is now called intersectionality in by some people, uh, even though I would say a lot of times, even even the people who do something close to co-synthesis aren't doing what Peter Kwan said, and it's because the whole history gets um, distorted. I gave a presentation on Eldridge Cleaver and Franz Fanon and their analysis of black male suffering and vulnerability within a colonial context uh, at a conference back in 2015, and uh, someone in the room said, well, intersectionality already does all of this. And I had presented my paper as a critique or as an alternative to intersectional approaches by taking this sort of anti-colonial approach. And I was like, how can that be? But what I realized later is that every single criticism of intersectionality, people who are proponents of intersectionality just say that's what intersectionality already does. And it can, and it subsumes it into its own framework, which is why intersectionality seems to mean so many things, even things that contradict other things that are called intersectionality. Yes, yes. They do that for everything that happens right now, like everything that uh, gets brought up. They will like acknowledge like a, a critique and still end up saying the same thing that that was being critiqued anyway. Like they won't actually change that original thing. They'll just acknowledge that it was a critique of it. And somehow that critique is considered um, reconciled or, um, you know, addressed. But so I think it's also interesting. And Belithia Watkins from uh, Howard did a piece on this. They extend the reach of intersectionality into the past, too. I forgot the name of the article, uh, but um, this is called like the Feminist Reclamation Project or something. I, I should I should find the correct name of this article, but she makes she makes the case of how um, intersectional scholars will uh, make everybody from the past um, intersectional. So suddenly, um, suddenly Harriet Tubman was uh, intersectional, you know, <laughs> and, and, and they'll, they'll seriously say stuff like that. She gives like tons of examples. So you see oh, they're called the Black Feminist Revisionist History Project, you know, and they'll, and they'll claim like all these people were black feminists or intersectional, whatever. And and it, it's it's a way to kind of also oh, uh, I think uh, somebody like uh, Ida B. Wells has been called like just about any prominent theorist you could think of. So that gives another way that people claim intersectionality um, already addressed this or already addressed that or explains everything because they will find a way to make all these old innovations actually be uh, intersectionality or a type of proto intersection intersectionality, you know? Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of interesting phenomena that, that arise here. One is the issue of uh, anachronicity in terms of, well, we're going to take this term intersectionality and then reinterpret uh, intellectual history to fit our our political agenda around what we want this term to mean or or do or, or what kind of um, force we want it to have within academia or liberal politics today. And, um, and so they go back and they say, oh, well, Maria Stewart, you know, yeah, she's a black woman writing in the 1830s and 40s, and she's doing intersectionality. So then when you ask, well, where exactly is the term intersectionality in here? Well, she's talking about race and gender. So anybody who talks about race and gender is doing intersectionality? Exactly. 
And the answer is no. And then here's the other, I think, uh, interesting phenomenon is that oftentimes it said that, well, black women created this. And then this is coming back to a comment that you made earlier where, you know, you kind of have this race, class, gender, uh, tripartite, but really class uh, is always negated. The question here is, okay, well, you know, you're talking about black women. And I would say even here, uh, it's not race and gender, it's race and sex. It is essentialist in that way. And we can talk about that in, in a minute too. But um, so what it is, and I have no problem. I, I'm, I'm, I'm all for, let's go back into intellectual history and read black women's texts because some of the stuff is awesome. And even the stuff that I disagree with, like some of Annie Julia Cooper stuff about colonizing Africa and bringing civilization to them through Christianity, or even Anna Julia Cooper's advocacy of patriarchy to protect, you know, in the black community to protect black women. Um, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, like that's kind of doesn't jive with the way that we usually think about stuff today. But I still think it's important for the intellectual history. So I'm all about that. But uh, what I'm not about is the anachron the uh, anachronistic readings of, of what's going on there. Um, and certainly not the going back and trying to give legitimacy to this relatively new idea that didn't exist until, you know, what is often called the neoliberal period, what I would call the neocolonial period of U.S. history uh, domestically and internationally. Um, that idea didn't even exist until then. And then trying to go back and legitimize it by finding these so-called historical precedents. It also just betrays a, a misunderstanding of the history of feminism. I mean, uh, in the 19th century, most of the leading feminists were for patriarchy. Um, they thought that patriarchy, uh, having a patriarchal family structure and social structure, was what separated civilized people from uncivilized people who didn't have patriarchy. Um, and so, like, when you just bring that up to feminists today and you say, well, you realize that these feminists were for patriarchy, nobody knows how to react because they don't even know the history. So that's why I think the history stuff is so good, but just not in this anachronistic sort of sort of way. And and uh, one thing that uh, I remember is one of the popular fences, there's people who will criticize intersectionality, but they will defend Kimberly Crenshaw herself and they'll say stuff like, oh, um, intersectionality has kind of become dumbed down by the neoliberal uh, people, by the Hillary Clinton Clintons and uh, Democrats and white liberals or just people who are just online on Tumblr and Twitter all day who, you know, don't really read scholarship, but that there was this so-called like good or not intersect or not neoliberal intersectionality espoused by Crenshaw that has become uh, corrupted. And I would admit I was one of those people that used to um, believe that, I would say, because uh, I, I saw this speech by her where she talks about, oh, intersectionality is not merely additive, you know, uh, you can't just add oppressions and stuff like that. And I was like, man, that's what I see all these people who claim to be intersectional do. They just think they get add oppressions. And, you know, she has various places where she says that or she will, you know, espouse that. But then as I got to more of her work, especially like her current stuff that she does now, you know, you know, with her think tanks and her podcasts and things that she does to kind of get put on with the Democratic Party. You know, she has these things to support Biden, for example, during the election. She's doing these these um, these podcasts. And she was just basically in effect just treating oppression as additive and I was like oh this is interesting like you, you can kind of get credit for being against something by saying it in certain speeches or whatever but then in practice when it's convenient you do that exact um thing because she, she had this one about how black men are kind of voting for Trump and supporting it and she was just kind of just basically making black men sound like the addition of um male 
patriarchy with blackness, but minus uh, gender enlightenment. Like, like in practice, it was just purely additive analysis of of oppression. She just didn't explicitly call it call it that. And I was like, so I think it's another thing that uh, intersectionality does, which you kind of just described that it gets credit for its criticisms as well as its um, beliefs in a way that's kind of un- unfair and uh, allows it to continue the exact same behavior it was supposedly um, criticized for. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, one, um, when I was working on my dissertation, I read several books, contemporary books um, on intersectionality. And one of the authors used the term intersectionality-like thought and intersectionality-like is hyphen, right? So intersectionality-like thought uh, to describe, you know, these uh, Black women intellectuals uh, projects, you know, historically, like from before the time intersectionality as a term, as a concept existed. So they say, oh, well, it's not intersectionality, but it's intersectionality like thought and to cast this broad net right the other thing here is you know if we go back and say oh well people have just like sort of misread crenshaw or whatever well i i would i would be inclined to say yeah there probably are people who have misread crenshaw um and some of them have misread what she was doing for you know by not being charitable to her project some people have misread it in a way that are trying to salvage her project from uh what are legitimate critiques of it um but i mean if we want to ask the political question oh the democratic party has just hijacked it you don't see the democratic party hijacking Derek bell's racial realism that's because there's some kind of core or essence to his intellectual project that's fundamentally incompatible with theirs. But there's nothing about intersectionality that's fundamentally incompatible with about um, with mainstream liberal Democratic Party politics. So they only will use things like that, you know, like we've been talking about, if it is consistent with what they perceive their interests to be. So there's nothing about intersectionality that is fundamentally opposed to mainstream liberal Democratic Party politics in the United States. States. And that's why it can get taken up. Is it a bastardized version? Perhaps to some degree, but that doesn't, but if it was somehow in contradiction to these mainstream politics, it wouldn't be taken up. It would be pushed to the side and never talked about just like Derek Bell is. So I think that that is, you know, the the fact that it's taken up is in and of itself a red flag. Um, Whether or not we want to concede a little ground and say, oh yeah, well, the, the version that is taken up is somewhat bastardized. I'm fine with that. You know, um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that, oh, just because there's this bastardized version doesn't mean that like the quote unquote real version, whatever that may be, or some version of the real versions don't have some kind of inherent problem that make them uh, that that position them to be co-opted in in that way. And I think, you know, um, and I think that that is uh, something to be, you know, uh, focused on. But I do want to also say something about intersectionality in these categories, because like you were saying before, uh, there's a presumption that what we do first is define the categories and assign them the types of oppressions that we think go with those categories. And then we use those categories to interpret things in the world. This is the opposite of what Bell is asking us to do, because Bell is asking us to do when he looks at history. Let's actually look at the history, start with the data and extrapolate from that using inductive reasoning. But that's not how intersectionality operates. Intersectionality starts with the categories, assigns them their qualities, and then applies those to society. And um, and this is part of the essentialism. But another part of the essentialism is the the sex and gender issue. So 
for those who you know have the internet you can go back and look at uh crenshaw's original two articles on this um and i just want to read this one sentence to show that she's actually using the terms sex and gender interchangeably and today we wouldn't do that but that's where the state of uh scholarship was at the time because the word gender didn't actually overtake the word sex until 1985 and so uh in terms of how often it's used and even when it did overtake it it just replaced sex which is why when you know two decades later we're talking about we have to get past gender gender binaries. Well, it's because that gender binary was only masking the the biological male-female binary that the term sex was meant to capture. So this is from Crenshaw's article. She says, for white women, claiming sex discrimination is simply a statement that, but for gender, they would not have been disadvantaged, end quote. So in that sentence, she uses those two terms interchangeably. And when you actually look at the titles of her of her two articles on um, uh, uh, on intersectionality, right? The first one is called Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, because that was still a predominant way of talking about it when she wrote that article. But then when you get to the next article, she doesn't actually use the term sex anywhere in there. She uses the term gender, but she's doing the same kind of thing. Another interesting change is that the original article is about black women. The next article uses the term women of color. And so what you see is this gradual metamorphosis of what intersectionality is. Um, just in these first two articles, with the latter article set in the stage for the way that we kind of talk about it now, but the first article actually being grounded in uh, uh, a very clear second wave feminist essentialism about sex difference. Uh, you know, um, there's. I'm thinking about how she recently had the, these podcasts and appearances and stuff, um, anti-Trump, pro-Democrats. But what's interesting with her was, I think this is another example of like, you know, talking out of uh, both sides of your mouth in a way. There was a there was a lot of things in 2019 or so, you know, before he became the president um, uh, candidate for the Democrats, where she was criticizing him and his, his treatment of Anita Hill and intersectional approach to Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's a perfect example of something that people could point to to say, hey, you know, she's she is still speaking truth to power. But I think at the time she was probably putting her um, eggs in another another basket. Um, my guess is she might have been probably uh, endorsing Warren or or Kamala Harris. Well, my guess would be probably Warren because Warren was trying to recruit a lot of academics and people from that camp, in, you know, into her um, thing. So I mean, that's an example, I think, of, you know, something that people point to and say, oh, she's not um, a student to power or whatever or or she is uh, was not she was co-opted by the Democrats because I have an example of you know um, you know her speaking against you know whatever but once Joe Biden became the candidate um, everything she did about the campaign was basically seemed like trying to get a job like you know it was all about bashing Trump and why we have to vote for Joe Biden and why black men are um, dangerous because they're probably going to vote for Trump over Biden. So kind of like, um, okay, you were able to kind of say this when there was no access at risk for you, you know? Uh, plus, I think, you know, uh, she probably, he had Kamala Harris as a running mate now. So that was a symbolic thing that might have made her um, not support him as as well. But I mean, it was kind of very clear to me that she was trying to um, show the usefulness to the white Democratic establishment 
management, you know, by by doing all this stuff with her, with her think tank. Uh, she had this, this this think tank. I forget what the name of it was, and it was doing these these podcasts. She was appearing on Crooked Media and all these different like you know white liberal white liberal places. But that I think is another example of not only like you said you said if she was really against the um, white liberal or white democratic project that supposedly um, co opted her work, her work wouldn't have been able to be um, co opted in the first place. But I'll even add to that if these people did co-opt her so badly and defang her stuff why is she working with them actively um for their projects and their ends and their and their candidates like, like why is she working with them to help elect the guy who um you know mistreated um anita hill during the clarence thomas um hearings and who also um was a major force behind the behind the crime bill and i w- and the stuff that she's saying in support of these people sounds exactly like the talking points of the so-called co-optation you know so yeah there's a malleability and a mm-hmm. and, and, and a and a movability. I, I, this should be a better word, but I can't think of it. Uh, but there's something about intersectionality that's so hard to pin down. It's everything, everywhere, all at once, and such a moving target that it can be kind of morphed into whatever um, you need it you need it to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it really can. And I mean, well, I think one thing that's going on there is a little bit of lesser evilism in terms of like voting and and sort of the the util the what I would call uh, um, sort of like superficial utilitarianism that gets used in that way. And I, I don't want to go down that path. We could do a whole episode just on my thoughts on on lesser evil voting. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but I think that that's part of it, right. That you have to be pragmatic, that you have to, you know, get your hands dirty and, 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 you know, minimize harm or whatever the case may be. Um, but I, I actually don't think it's inconsistent with, you know, some of the stuff that she writes, especially in her early work. I mean, um, in the, in the essay, uh, from 1988, race reform and retrenchment, transformation and legitimation and anti-discrimination law, um, Crenshaw openly takes up, uh, a, uh, uh, an unabashed liberal position and, and, you know, and she's very clear about that. So I, I mean, you know, I don't think that she's doing anything insidious. I think she was very clear about what she was doing from the start. And the thing is, is that people want to take what she's doing and make it radical in a way that it's not. Um, you know, but then when you look closely at it, you can see that that that's not true. So, you know, I mean, she refers to, and this is a quote straight from her, her 1988 paper, right? That she refers to, quote, transformative potential that liberalism offers. And she says that, quote, people can demand change only in ways that reflect the logic of the institutions they are challenging, you know, um, and she advocates a, quote, pragmatic use of liberal ideology. So, uh, you know, so for anybody who's surprised by what she's doing in the last three or four years in terms of uh, uh, electoral politics, she said all that stuff in the 80s. So, you know, um, so I don't think that all that should be really surprising. I think it's embedded in the actual framework that she's using. And then the question becomes, if we actually do need some kind of more radical politics, not only outside the two-party, you know, duopoly or or what might be called a single party with with two names, um, as Du Bois put it, uh, but outside of electoral politics altogether, then you know we're going to confront the limitations of Crenshaw here in her commitment to use liberalism pragmatically, as she says. Um, so I think those are some of the the important questions that we would have to ask ourselves in terms of you know uh, what what is it that we are we trying to achieve and you know depending on what you know 
community you're from and, and so on, you know, asking those in your own community, what well, what are our objectives? How do we achieve them? And so on. And if something more radical is needed, then there's just going to be a limit to what Crenshaw can offer, um, you know, in her program. So in this article, I was going to read this this segment, you say, um, before the recent controversy over CRT, Crenshaw was predominantly known as a scholar responsible for coining the term intersectionality and providing intellectual orientation to a type of feminist theory that sought to account for race and gender simultaneously rather than separately, as intersectionality theorists have accused other social theories of doing. Yet, when the scholarly origins of Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality are excavated, it becomes clear that it is rooted not only in philosophical ideas but also in racist and colonialist ideology. The first step in understanding Crenshaw's version of CRT and the intellectual origins of intersectionality is to understand her part of the idealist strain of CRT. Unlike the realist theories of CRT, such as Derrick Bell, who placed racism in an economic context, approach the study of racial histories from an empirical perspective and present anti-colonial and anti-imperial critiques of American society, idealists like Crenshaw argue that racism is largely a psychological issue, a problem with white consciousness that is best addressed through education and the evolution of language and symbols. Idealists also tend to be more reformist than radical, preferring to claim so-called American values as their own rather than um, fundamentally question the nation's imperial history and present. And then from there, you start backing these claims up with examples from her work. And you start with the 1988 essay, Race, Reform, and uh, Retrenchment, Transformation, and Legitimation in Anti-Discrimination Law. And the reason I read that summary is because I feel like the following analysis of her work by you uh, is working to back those claims that were uh, in those paragraphs that I just read. And you, um, I think, did a pretty good job of it. I'll leave it to the readers to judge for themselves. But um, so let's start with that 1988 essay. What in that 1988 essay do you feel backs those claims that you made that I that I just read? And, you know, like I want to walk through the history of her intellectual thought, you know, so that we can not just say these claims about her work, but actually give examples of um, tangible examples in the text that support these claims. Yeah. So um, part of the so the so there's kind of a twofold critique here. One is her commitment to liberalism um, and her use of uh, idealist approaches to CRT. And um, the second one is, I think, her very problematic reliance on um, racist and colonialist ideologies um, in some of her footnotes. And of course, um, for those claims, I draw on some of the uh, historical research um, done by Tommy Curry. But um, to come to the liberalism and the and the philosophical idealism, um, I talked a little bit about the liberalism already in terms of uh, her com- her commitment to using liberalism strategically. But, um, but as for the idealism, the other part of that sort of uh, mix of ideas, she says, you know, she says that transformation um, in society, she says it must begin with beliefs about blacks in American society, how these beliefs legitimize racial coercion. Um, and she's talking especially about what white people believe, but also, you know, uh, instances when, say, for example, uh, um Black people in the United States internalize anti-Black racist uh, beliefs or something like this. And in this way, she's very similar to uh, the kinds of things that uh, Kindy or the 1619 Project are trying to do, right? It begins with beliefs. This is why Kindy wrote a book about the, the definitive history of racist ideas, right? Um 
And she makes the distinction in this essay, Crenshaw does, between symbolic subordination and material subordination. And uh, symbolic subordination is at the level of language or understanding where uh, Black people are defined as uh, lesser, right, second-class citizens, or maybe even not humans, depending on how far we want to go into anti-colonialism with this. Um, and basically, it's it's the it's the idea that blacks are inferior to whites. And material subordination refers to um, like disparities in uh, wealth, health, education, housing, so on, right? Some of those things that the realists put first. But Crenshaw is very clear about which one of these causes the other one. She says, quote, symbolic subordination often created material disadvantage by reinforcing race consciousness and everything from employment to education. Now, you can see how after our discussion here of some of the realist stuff uh, and Derek Bell, how this is a uh, an inversion of CRT realism. CRT realism would say, well, yeah, the material disadvantages are imposed because white people have an interest in doing so, and then they come up with a justification for it, which are racist ideas, racist beliefs. But the idealist, like Crenshaw, will invert that. It's actually the symbolic subordination, it's the racist beliefs that cause the material disadvantage. And we can get into this idealism versus materialism stuff and 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 kind of get into like a, a chicken and egg paradox, right? But um, I think just sort of noting this here is very important because it shows why uh, CRT idealists like Crenshaw want to educate. They want to change hearts and minds. They want to um, raise awareness and consciousness. That's how you get there. Um, that goes back to um, the moral psychology that we were talking about earlier. It's, a, it's an epistemological failing rather than an interest-based decision like like the CRT realists would say and so um and so I think that that passage combined with her comments about using liberalism pragmatically is how you can see where liberal politics are not foreign to her project and why her um idealism this kind of moral psychology fits in with contemporary liberal politics around race and this passage, you know, um, I, I just want to just want to repeat it just because it's uh, so powerful to me in, in a bad way. Symbolic subordination often created material disadvantage by reinforcing race consciousness and everything from employment to education. Uh, and that's a that's the kind of that's the kind of phrase that if you read it, it really justifies a lot of the things that we've been um, critiquing. But this idea that representation can fix everything, like Stuart Hall's uh, thing about, well, hey, we have all these material problems, but look at these better representations of doctors and whatever, or people like, hey, uh, yeah, there's George Floyd and Trayvon Martin and so many other people who got um, killed, but more Black people are getting Oscars and being recognized as great actors, or Michael B. Jordan at the Black Lives Matter protest, you know, showing up to George to a George Floyd thing to talk about how uh, we need more Black actors, more Black content creators, and you know, like like George George Floyd's body is not even, not even dead yet, but uh, for people who kind of say, oh, that's neoliberal and Crimity Crenshaw's is not. I mean, there's a sentence from her right here that shows that, hey, that's in line with what she thinks. Like, you know, Black people not having symbolic wins and not having good representation is actually creating the material um, dis disadvantage. You know, that's a, it's not, it's not really a misinterpretation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, like, I think there's, uh, 
one aspect to be to be mindful of here, and that is the causal claim, right? So the CRT realists are usually going to say that uh, material structures cause symbolic subordination in that they create a situation in which those kinds of ideas need to be generated and acted upon so that the material structures will remain the same for those people like white people who would benefit from them in these different kinds of ways. Crenshaw's claim, the causal claim, is the reverse. It's that symbolic subordination, racist ideas, create, lead to, right, result in material disadvantage. So if you want to get to the root of the problem, it's not the economic structure, it's the belief structure. And if you change the belief structure, then a change in the material structure and the economic structure will follow. So I think that this is very interesting. The question is, we can we can actually try to empirically test this historically, right? Does a change in the symbolic orientation of white people lead to a change in the material advantages and disadvantages of black people? And if the answer is yes, then we would have some evidence to support this sort of approach to addressing uh, racism. If the answer is no, or maybe even just very little, well, then we would have to say maybe they've got the causal relationship backwards. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of what Derek Bell is trying to do with his theory of racial fortuity, interest convergence and racial sacrifice, respectively, um, I think he's trying to offer a response to this kind of idea. And in pointing out things like racial symbols, um, Brown v. Board of Education as a symbol of progress and so on, I think he, what he's trying to say is that you can change symbols or, or add symbols in, and rather than changing the material conditions, it actually hides them. And uh, And if that's the case, if Bell and other kind of realist approaches um, are right about that, then that would pose serious problems for this claim uh, that we're getting from Crenshaw. So I don't think that we have to decide now who's right or who's wrong. I'm, my impression is that both of us are a little bit more um, convinced by the realist approach. But I do think that framing the the problem very clearly does help us at least clarify what's at stake in the debate. And then to say, okay, and now people's got to marshal evidence for their views. And I think Derek Bell just happens to give us a lot of evidence for, uh, to, um, you know, in contradiction of this claim by Crenshaw. Yeah. And I feel like you can do a straight through line from, you know, this um, passage to the current belief of, you know, representation matters and how that kind of permeates all racial discourse now, how everything just kind of ends up leading back to representation somehow. And, and this is like, you know, a perfect example. 